Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. So we got lots of stuff for you as usual. The top story at Antiwar.com, China is encircling Taiwan with military drills in response to Nancy Pelosi's visit. So Nancy Pelosi touched down in Taiwan on Tuesday night. Um, if you're in the U.S. on the East Coast, Taiwan is 12 hours ahead of us. So she touched down late Tuesday, uh, Taiwan time. Um, and around the time she landed, the China's People's Liberation Army, the PLA, they said it would conduct a series of military operations surrounding Taiwan and announced that, quote, strong military responses were underway Uh, According to the South China Morning Post, the PLA said the response will include joint air and naval patrols to the north, southwest, and southeast of Taiwan's coastline and airspace. The drills will also include long-distance live-fire artillery shooting in the Taiwan Strait, as well as missile test firings in the waters east of the island. A spokesman for the PLA's Eastern Theater Command said, quote, This action is a solemn deterrent against the recent major escalation of the negative actions of the United States on the Taiwan issue and a serious warning to Taiwanese forces seeking independence. End quote. So now on top of the currency, uh, on top of the current military drills, the Chinese news agency Xinhua released a notice that said the PLA will be closing off six areas around Taiwan for live fire drills from 12 p.m. on Thursday to 12 p.m. on Sunday, and that's Beijing time. Now, if you're watching the video, you could see the map here. They highlighted the areas that the PLA will be closing off, and some are very close to Taiwan's coast. So this is a serious response. You know, this looks like the largest military. We're going to see the biggest military drills around Taiwan that China's carried out in decades. And it's all because Nancy Pelosi decided to visit the island. Um, They're expected to have a greater response to this trip than they did during the third Taiwan Strait crisis, which was sparked in 1995 by the U.S. giving a visa to former Taiwanese President Li tang Hu. Beijing responded to that in 95 by launching a series of missile tests towards Taiwan, and the tensions lasted for months, with the U.S. eventually sending two aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Strait. Um, So now, while China is preparing these massive military exercises, the U.S. is sending more military assets into the region. Uh, Before Pelosi touched down, four U.S. warships, including an aircraft carrier, took up positions east of Taiwan. And her plane was reportedly escorted by at least eight U.S. Air Force warplanes, including F-15s. So tensions are very high in the region, um, all because of this trip by Nancy Pelosi, um, which apparently the Biden administration thought was a bad idea, but they didn't push her very hard to stop her from going. So I find it hard to believe that they didn't want her to go. Um, You know, right before she arrived, we saw the White House basically back her trip, say that she has the right to go and that they're going to look out for her security. Um, So now the next one here, Pelosi, this is an op-ed that was published in the Washington Post by Nancy Pelosi right before she landed in Taiwan. She accused China of threatening democracy itself 
She said, quote, we cannot stand by as the CCP proceeds to threaten Taiwan and democracy itself, end quote. So now she repeated this common line that the world is facing a choice between autocracy and democracy. And we've heard this a lot out of the Biden administration. It's coming from Washington, from all corners of Washington. And we've seen Biden frame the U.S. rivalry with China and Russia as a global battle between autocracy and democracy. And I point out in this article that he even used this this line when he was at a recent um, summit of the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is made up of uh, Gulf monarchs. He said, you know, he's trying to enlist them, uh, enlist their support against China and Russia and say we're in this battle of autocracy and democracy. So you just see really the hypocrisy in the U.S. policy when he's saying this to a group of Gulf monarchs. Um, and so, so Pelosi said in a statement after she landed, quote, America's solidarity with the 23 million people of Taiwan is more important today than ever as the world faces a choice between autocracy and democracy, end quote. Um, so not all, not everybody, not all of those 23 million people of Taiwan support what Pelosi's doing here. In fact, many seem to oppose it. Um, Taiwan's United Daily News, which is a news website, uh, Taiwanese media, they conducted a poll of nearly 7,500 readers, and 61% said the trip was not welcome as it may destabilize the Taiwan Strait. Only 38% were happy about the visit and said it had more advantages than disadvantages. So when Pelosi and her congressional delegation arrived in Taiwan, they were met with protesters who opposed the trip as well as demonstrators who welcome the American lawmakers. And again, she went ahead with this trip knowing it could provoke a major crisis, and it looks like it it has, and she's going to leave Taiwan. She's probably going to leave sometime Wednesday uh, in Taiwan time, um, and she's going to leave as these major drills are going on, leaving behind this mess. So the next one, bipartisanship when it comes to stoking tensions with nuclear powers is very strong. Um, Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, and 25 other Republican senators issued a statement supporting Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. They said, quote, we support Speaker of the House of Representative Nancy Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. For decades, members of Members of the United States Congress, including previous speakers of the House, have traveled to Taiwan, end quote. So Pelosi is the first House speaker to visit Taiwan since Newt Gingrich did it in 1997. You know, they're acting like this is kind of normal, that there is precedent for this, but there's really not, because that came right after that uh, Taiwan Strait crisis, and China's military is much different than what it is today. I see many Chinese analysts say that the response is going to be much stronger uh, because of that. And so now, uh, again, we've seen this support come from Republicans, including former Trump administration officials. And we saw former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who's a huge China hawk. He wrote on Twitter, quote, glad to see Speaker Pelosi follow through today on her visit to Taiwan, end quote. So now... Uh, We're done with China, and we're going to get into the next nuclear power that the U.S. is stoking tensions with, which is Russia. So Russia's defense ministry on Tuesday said that Washington was directly involved in the war in Ukraine after a Ukrainian official detailed Kiev's cooperation with the U.S. 
before they launch strikes using U.S. provided HIMARS, which is the mobile rocket launch system that the U.S. has been shipping to Ukraine. So we so the other day, the deputy head of Ukraine's military intelligence told the Telegraph that Ukrainian officials consulted with U.S. officials before launching strikes with these HIMARS and that the U.S. has veto powers over these strikes. So basically, they they consult with the U.S. before they launch attacks with these weapons and the U.S. can tell them, uh, no, you know, don't don't go through with it. Don't hit that target. And this official, this Ukrainian official, he he insisted that the U.S. wasn't providing a direct targeting information, but suggested that Ukraine was using satellite imagery provided by the U.S. and Britain. He he told the Telegraph, "I can't tell you, you know, whether or not we're using British and American satellites, but we have very good satellite imagery." He said. So Russia responded to this. A spokesman for the Russian Defense Ministry said that. This cooperation, quote, proves that contrary to the assurances by the White House and the Pentagon, Washington is directly involved in the conflict in Ukraine, end quote. So now we've seen Russia say similar things, but this seems a little stronger that it's coming straight from the Russian Ministry of Defense and that they're saying, yet now we think, us, the Russian military, think that the U.S. is directly involved in this war. So what does that mean? And all this cooperation, the billions in weapons, the intelligence sharing, it risks provoking a response from Moscow. It's very clear that it does. We're funding, the U.S. is funding a war on Russia's border, bragging about helping killing Russian troops. Um, So when it comes to the intelligence sharing, we saw this Ukrainian official say that they're not providing direct targeting information, but earlier in the war... uh, we saw that the U.S. expanded its intelligence sharing with Ukraine's forces. And there were U.S. officials bragging to the media, uh, saying that this cooperation's, cooperation has helped kill Russian generals and sink a Russian warship. Now, we don't know if those claims are true. They tend to exaggerate um, these things against Russia, especially when it comes to the generals. But whether or not they're true, I mean, it, that was just such a huge provocation, bragging to the media that were killing their troops, that were killing their leaders on the battlefield. I mean, how you always have to analyze, look at this, analyze this as what would the U.S. do in this situation? How would the U.S. respond? And, you, you know, you, there would be a huge response. And you, you saw how everybody freaked out um, back when the New York Times reported that the they reported that U.S. intelligence assessed that Russia was helping the Taliban was paying bounties to the Taliban to kill Russian, uh, excuse me, to kill American troops in Afghanistan. Now, this story turned out to be completely false. It was pretty clear from the beginning that it was planted in the New York Times to disrupt plans to withdraw from Afghanistan. And it also served to increase tensions with Russia. Um, Just search, you know, Russian bounties, on antiwar.com and there's plenty of articles debunking this nonsense story and it later came out i think during the biden administration that the u.s didn't have that intelligence that said that uh so it turned out to be a fake story but the reaction here in the united states i mean was as if russia was you know going to war with us because of just because of that so you just have to keep these things in mind how how the view is from moscow (laughs) 
So the next one here, this is this is a follow-up about the new START treaty, which is the last piece of nuclear arms control between the U.S. and Russia. We saw Biden on Monday. He said that his administration is ready to negotiate a replacement to new START, which expires in 2026. But his his statement also said that um, that you know basically it signaled that he won't negotiate with Russia while the war in Ukraine is going on. So now we see uh, Russia responded. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that Russian officials have been calling for to resume arms control negotiations with the U.S. When Russia invaded Ukraine, the U.S. cut off arms control talks that were going on. And we've seen Russian officials say a few times since the war started that they should be resumed. But the U.S. has shown no interest. And this is basically what Peskov was saying and it does seem like this offer from biden wasn't a real offer because it had that caveat basically that oh but they're fighting a war in ukraine so now we can't talk to them but i mean new, the risk we keep seeing this officials we saw the u the u.n secretary general say yesterday that the risk of nuclear war is higher now than during the cold war so you would think negotiating arms control treaties should be a priority but unfortunately it's not um, but hopefully there's some progress here at some point because, um, you know, 2026 seems like a long time away. But when it comes to U.S.-Russia relations, they're not getting back on track anytime soon. So we hope that they could at least extend that treaty and hopefully um, negotiate more treaties. But that seems pretty unlikely now, uh, This just the state of these relations. Okay, so the next one here, the U.S., the Biden administration approves a massive arms deal for Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, the State Department on Tuesday approved two potential deals to Saudi Arabia and the UAE worth over $5 billion combined. Now the sale to the Saudis is for Patriot surface-to-air missiles and is worth an estimated $3.05 billion. The principal contractor for the Patriot deal is Raytheon, the former employer of Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. He served on their board before taking his post at the Pentagon. According to the Pentagon's Defense Security Cooperation Agency, the Patriots are meant to, quote, defend the kingdom of Saudi Arabia's borders against persistent Houthi cross-border unmanned aerial system and ballistic missile attacks, end quote. Um... So I'll get into this in another article, but the approval for the Patriot sale, it came as a four-month truce in Yemen has held. It's fragile, but there's been no no Houthi attacks in Saudi Arabia, and there's been no Saudi Arabia, Saudi-led airstrikes in Yemen. Um, and then the deal for the UAE, it's also for a missile defense system for THAAD missiles and related equipment worth about $2.2 billion. The principal contractor for the THAADs is Lockheed Martin. We keep seeing uh, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin seem to be doing pretty good these days. Uh, business is definitely booming for them. So what's interesting is that this this deal, it comes as Israel is looking to build a U.S.-backed military alliance with Gulf countries in the Middle East against Iran. So the idea of the alliance is to focus on integrated missile defense systems, although there has not been much public Arab support for the proposal so far. That doesn't mean that they're working; they're not working on this behind the scenes. Um, so the State Department's approval, it begins a period where Congress could potentially block the sales. 
Now we've seen Biden uh, with his Yemen policy say that he's not going to sell, you know, quote, offensive weapons to the to the Saudis. But we've seen him push through other missile deals and before. Um, but I mean, this is a pretty big sale, so it shows. Um, hopefully, it's not a sign that they're gearing up to escalate in Yemen. Um, they agreed to extend the truce by two months, uh, which I'll, I will get into a little more. Um, that's the next one here. So Yemen parties agree to two-month extension of truce. This is from Jason Ditz. So this is good news. Uh, Yemen, the war in Yemen has been raging since 2015. Uh, the UN estimates 377,000 people have died in the war, more, more than half that died of starvation and disease related to the conditions caused by the U.S.-backed Saudi-led coalition, the Coalition of Gulf Countries. Um, by their bombing and blockade, their bombing campaign and blockade. The bombing campaign has targeted civilian infrastructure um, relentlessly throughout this war, and the blockade has prevented um, aid and uh, shipments of oil and gas from getting in the country. It's a starvation. It's a war of starvation, and and innocent civilians and children are starving to death because of this war. It's horrific, and there's been this truce since March. Four months. So there's fighting on the ground, and the Saudis were supposed to ease the blockade. They've let some ships in. They let some flights out of the Sana'a airport. The Houthis are saying it's not enough. And we've seen reports of the Saudis still blocking ships from entering Hodeida, which is the Red Sea port in Yemen. Um, but again, there's been no airstrikes, Saudi led airstrikes in Yemen or Houthi attacks inside Saudi Arabia for four months. So that's, it's significant. And hopefully, you know, the UN was looking to extend the truce by six months and they just got two months. Um, everybody, experts that I rely on say that it's a very fragile truce. Um, so hopefully more develops here. But, and then this, I should tell everybody, there is a war powers resolution that was introduced in the house and a similar one was introduced in the Senate that would end U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen. And because the U.S. maintains the Saudi Air Force, if that happened, if the U.S. cut off that support, uh, experts agree that it would ground the Saudi Air Force pretty quickly. So they, they couldn't carry this war on without U.S. support. So you could call your congressman, your senator, and tell them to support this resolution. You can call one eight three three, stop war, and you know you give them your information. They'll connect you to your rep's office or your senator's office. And if you go to one eight three three stop war. dot com, there is a prompt there that will take you through what to say. I use that because I kind of just feel awkward making these calls. Um, and that, but that website makes it pretty easy. You just kind of run through a little script. Um, so yeah, this is really important and this is the time to do it because like I said, it's a very fragile truce and the Saudis with these arms sales, maybe they, they are thinking that they're going to be, uh, escalating this war in the future and potentially in the near future. So the pressure, it would be good to get this pressure on Biden and, and they've passed this war powers resolution before during Trump, but he vetoed it. Um, so hopefully if enough people got behind it, Biden would get a message and, and U.S. support for this brutal, brutal war. Okay, so the next one, 
The U.S. has no DNA confirmation of Ayman al-Zawahiri's death. So President Biden announced on Monday that a CIA drone strike in Afghanistan and Kabul killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri, the top leader of al-Qaeda, who was the successor to Osama bin Laden. And then on Tuesday, White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said that the U.S. does not have DNA confirmation. But he said that they have other confirmation. He said, quote, we do not have DNA confirmation. We're not going to get that confirmation, quite frankly, based on multiple sources and methods that we've gathered information from. We don't need it, end quote. Uh, he said that they have visual confirmation and confirmation through other sources. Um, so when Biden announced the strike on Monday, he said that U.S. intelligence located Zawahiri earlier this year and that he recently moved to downtown Kabul to live with his immediate family. He said he was living in Kabul's Sherpa neighborhood, and w- which is where the U.S. embassy was located. So Zawahiri was apparently living right by the U.S. embassy. Um so after Biden announces a drone strike, an administration official told reporters that U.S. intelligence had high confidence that the person who was killed in the strike was Zawahiri. But still, we don't really have confirmation. It's kind of just the Biden administration's word. I'm not saying that they're just making this up or lying about it, but we just have to be very skeptical of what the U.S. says happened in a drone strike because we know that they kill frequently kill civilians and not their intended targets. Um, And the Taliban, they've condemned the U.S. drone strike, and they put out a statement um, that, uh, and their account of the strike, it matches the U.S. account. It says it was in that neighborhood in Kabul, said it hit a residence. The U.S. said that they hit him in his home, Um, but they haven't confirmed that it was Zawahiri. Uh, So it'll be interesting, you know, kind of what comes out of the Taliban after this. Because we have the, the Taliban's accusing the U.S. of violating the Doha Agreement, which was signed in February 2020, that paved the way for the withdrawal. And then you have Blinken and the U.S. accusing the Taliban of violating the deal because Zawahiri was living in Kabul. And under that deal, the Taliban agreed not to let you know terrorist groups use Afghanistan gain a foothold in Afghanistan, pretty much. So I'm just curious to see, because the U.S. and the Taliban have been engaged in some talks. So I'm curious. Giving him safe haven that they didn't know it was him or maybe deny that it was him altogether. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. Um, but yeah, it's just important to know, I think, that we just still don't know exactly what happened. Um, thankfully, we haven't seen reports that civilians were killed because uh, that that's something I think we would hear right away from the Taliban if the strike did kill uh, civilians. Um, so the next one here, the IAEA, the UN's nuclear watchdog, they're accusing Iran of not being transparent with their nuclear program. So this is from this is from Jason Ditz as well. It's really just more fear mongering about Iran's nuclear program. What Iran is complying with a monitoring. Uh, monitoring that was under the nuclear deal, the JCPOA that they signed with the U.S., that the U.S. pulled out of way back in 2018. Uh, So Iran has no obligation to follow that deal while the U.S. is not uh, still in it. So this is really just fear-mongering. And we've seen Iran slowly, you know, they're voluntarily complying with many aspects of the deal for years. And we've seen them slowly stop as they're 
just trying to get leverage over to the U.S. to get the U.S. to lift sanctions to return to the deal. Um, so that's it for today. I hope everybody is enjoying the show. We have um, been getting a lot of good feedback, getting a lot of downloads. Uh, if you're listening on audio, which most people are, you could also subscribe to the YouTube channel just to pump up our numbers there. Uh, you could contact the show, news at antiwar.com. You could find me on Twitter at DeCampDave. You could message me. Pretty easy to get a hold of. You can donate. You can support the show by donating to antiwar.com at antiwar.com slash donate. Um, as always, we have a lot of good viewpoints on the page. I'm going to start reading them when I'm done recording. I got to get caught up. Today was a pretty crazy day. Uh, but I appreciate everybody listening, and I'll be back with you tomorrow. Thank you.